I've been asked to give an introductory survey on, of the basic principles of nature or the basic principles of the philosophy of nature. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, I'll be following basically a short little text that he wrote called The Principles of Nature. I commend that text to anyone who's a beginner or is making first forays into this topic. Uh, it was written by St. Thomas for his Dominican brethren, who at one point seemed to have asked him, uh, please make Aristotle easy for us. And he wrote this text out. And in fact, he does kind of make Aristotle easy. Um, so that's the text I'll be going through. In order to jump into it, we have to situate things in a, a larger context. I know there's a lot of scientists here, and there's a lot of people who are already have a, a, a well-elaborated understanding of nature at a very detailed level. So what we're going to be doing this morning is an exercise that you are probably not accustomed to at all, those who are practicing scientists. We're going to step back from a lot of detail. And we're gonna reconsider nature afresh uh, in a very general way, trying to start in a way where Aristotle himself started with our ordinary, everyday experience. Our experience of kind of large scale, ordinary size objects around us, ordinary size or larger ones that we pick up on with our senses. And we're gonna start with a kind of common sense experience of them. And I'm gonna walk you through the problematic that Aristotle himself walked through, at least part of it. I obviously, I can't elaborate the whole problematic, but I'll try to elaborate the core of that problematic for you. And in order to articulate a set of basic principles that he, I believe, discovered, and that I think articulate the essential structure of the world of nature, okay? And then at the very end, after I elaborate some of those principles and show you how he thought of them, I'll give an account of how these very general principles of nature, which are articulations, I think, of the essences of things, uh, how those might relate to contemporary uh, science. There isn't an, an account or an understanding of that worked out already by some Thomistic philosophers, but I'd like to see what people here think about that. Before I jump into the elaborating the, the problematic for you, I want to first draw a distinction between two kinds of analysis. I get this from a philosopher named Kenneth Schmitz, who understood Aristotle and St. Thomas well, but he also understood modern philosophy and modern science well, and he could see a serious difference between the very mode of analysis that takes place in Aristotelian philosophy and what takes place in modern science. So there's two kinds of analysis, according to Ken Schmitz. One he calls analysis by principles. The other he calls analysis by elements. Let's start with analysis by elements because that's what we're all accustomed to from the days of grade school science classes. Here's an object, and what do we do? We break down the quantitative whole into smaller quantitative parts. And then we consider those quantitative parts, and we break those down into still smaller quantitative parts. And then we take those quantitative parts and break them down into still smaller quantitative parts until you come to some fundamental unit of analysis, whatever you want to call that, 
atoms, maybe. I don't know. That's what ancient philosophers called them. Um, and then using those fundamental units of analysis, we try and in turn to explain or account for the features of the whole object. Now that's so obvious in the method that we're also habituated to from, such, from, so, um, from early on in our lives that we don't even realize that's actually a, a methodological choice to analyze things that way. And it's not the only alternative on the table. There's another mode of analysis that's at our disposal that Aristotle used. Because in the, because really he was an anti-atomist. We'll get to that later, uh, especially in a late talks later today. Aristotle analyzes the world in terms of elements. He too, I'm sorry, not in terms of elements, in terms of principles. He too wants to account for the world around us, but he doesn't account for it first of all, by jumping to the most basic material units of things. He has a more fundamental uh, explanatory apparatus at his disposal, and he uses this term called principle, or in Greek, arche, or we sometimes translate it as source. And these principles, or arche, or sources, are not necessarily the most fundamental units or building blocks of nature. Elements are one type of principle, but not the only types of principles there are. There's many kinds of principles, okay? We can call them constitutive principles, intrinsic principles, extrinsic principles. Any time a thing has any kind of source or explanatory factor at all, that can be called a principle or a source, okay? So Aristotle analyzes things into principles not into elements, although he has a notion of elements. We'll get to that at the end, okay? In order to explain what this analysis by principles is, I, maybe the best way to do it is to actually jump into the problematic and we'll start to elaborate these principles and you can start to see, yeah, this is not like analysis into elements. This is a different kind of thinking that's, that's going on. That's right. So let's start with um, the problematic, or let's jump into the problematic. Aristotle's basically trying to deal with the problem of change. That's the, the, uh, the problem he inherits from the pre-Socratic philosophers and from his studies with Plato. How do we account for change? How can we say that there's a stable reality in a world that's in flux? We want to say both. There are stable realities and things change. How can they both be true? Okay, that's the very general problem. Now let's try to get more specific. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put up on the board here statements, which I think will be self-evident truths, okay, to everyone here. But once you realize that all four of these are true, that's when you see the problem, the aporia, that Aristotle's wrestling with. So let's start with something very general, okay, so general that you may think this is ridiculous. Well, that's how philosophy works. It starts with things that are so basic, so evident, so obvious, that you simply can't deny them, and then out of that, you generate a lot of problems, okay? Um, so here's number one. Some things change. I hope that's self-evident. And I take it that in a room of scientists and people who use common sense, we won't argue about 
what it, what a thing is, okay? Some things change. There's just, there are things around us in nature and they change, okay? Now by change, I mean something very broad. I don't mean just locomotion or change in place. We're talking about all kinds of change whatsoever. Uh, there's growth. Animals, you know, cats and dogs are born, they grow, they get bigger. Uh, things get smaller, they shrink. Um, some things will change their qualities. They go from cold to hot. They change colors. These are common sense kinds of observations, okay? Uh, all that, oh, and also they do change place. That's one kind of change as well. All those things, all those kinds of change uh, are all included under this one very broad notion of change, okay? Change of place, change of quality, change of size, quantity, okay? They're all underneath that, okay? So we, we face this kind of brute observation. Some things change. And here's one of the basic inferences we can draw. If we want to set it up as an inference, really it's a discovery that Aristotle made between potentiality and actuality. And the basic principle goes something like this. If some things change, as we affirm here that they do, then they must have potentiality. They must have potentiality in them. By potentiality, we just mean the ability to be, that which can be. That's what potentiality or potency is. Now let's please note, I want, I want to make something right up, make an observation up front. I'm not saying potential energy. That's way more specific than anything Aristotle has to say. And in fact, the word energy uh, and its relation to Aristotle's Greek is very complicated. So let's just try to set aside the notion of energy or potential energy. I'm just talking about potential, which is much, I think, a broader notion than potential energy, okay? So if things change, they must have potentiality in them. If, they had, if something had absolutely no potentiality, literally, it could not be otherwise. If it can be otherwise, then it has potentiality because that's what potentiality is, that which can be, okay? So already, it seems, just this one observation leads us to an interesting claim that the th all the things of nature have potentiality in them, okay? If they have potentiality. Now, what does Aristotle call this potentiality? He says matter is this potentiality. Matter is the principle of potentiality. Now let's also stop for a minute and note, when Aristotle uses the term matter, he doesn't mean fundamental building block, fundamental unit, or something like that, okay? What does he mean? Well, that's one of the great questions. What is matter? He, does, he understands it as one of these principles, constitutive principles of things, okay? And what it is, is something we can explore, okay? But he doesn't load things up front by saying what matter ultimately is, is these fundamental units or atoms or something like that. No, it's potentiality, okay? And this potentiality can be studied at different levels of analysis, as we'll see as we go along. There can be secondary matter, primary matter, uh, limited potentiality, total potentiality, all that. It's all matter. Matter and potentiality basically are coincident notions for Aristotle, okay? 
what would possibly make him say that matter is the principle of potentiality? Well, just again, if we use common sense, if you think of something like building a sand castle, okay, the, ma the matter, the sand is, is in potentiality to this shape or to that shape, and it can be you know, made this way or made that way. So the material out of which the thing is made is in potentiality to one form or another, okay? That's how he thinks about it, and that's why he thinks of matter as potentiality. It's a kind of common sense thing. If you work with um, materials, they're in potentiality to being this or to being that, okay? All right, so matter is not necessarily or not essentially a thing or a unit, okay? Matter is a constitutive principle of all changeable units. Okay? It's a constitutive principle of changeable units. And it correlates, it co-constitutes things together with form. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay? But all matter for Aristotle is going to be under some form or another. We'll get to that. Okay? As we go. But this is our first, our first evident observation. Some things change. And from that follows potentiality and matter. But there's a second kind of brute observation. Number two, some things change without ceasing to be what they are. Okay, again, if we're using common sense kinds of observations, evident things given in our basic experience of the world. A dog is born and the dog goes from being small to being large. It goes from being lighter to being heavier, but it doesn't cease to be a dog. And it doesn't cease to be the particular dog that it is. A tree goes from being a sapling to being a full grown oak without ceasing to be a tree. Water goes from being cold to hot without ceasing to be water. So some things change without ceasing to be what they are. That Aristotle also thinks is self-evident, kind of I mean self-evident to, to the senses, practically speaking. Okay, it's just they're givens. Okay, now just as in the first one, there are implications of the first one, so there's implications of the second one, if you think about it. If some things change without ceasing to be what they are then something in them accounts for what they are. And it, whatever that is, endures through variations of features, while something else accounts for the features of things, and that other thing, whatever it is, comes and goes. Okay? That's how Aristotle thinks about things. There's, there's sort of things, things in the world around us come in natural kinds. For Aristotle, that's practically a given. Things come in different natural kinds. There's dogs, there's cats, there's water, there's trees, there's flowers. These are not the same kinds of things. They're different kinds of things. That's a primordial sort of starting point, we could say. And their features come and go, but what they are stays the same. So there must be something in them that accounts for what they are, that makes them to be of a certain natural kind. 
while something else, another principle, accounts for their changes in, or their variations in their features. So here's how Aristotle develops things, and we can lay out a principle now um, in the sense of a proposition. All things of nature are composed of substance and accident. All things of nature are composed of substance and accident, where the term accident really means what we might call any feature of a thing as distinct from its natural kind. So if we had you know, a dog here in front of us, Fido, and if I were to ask you, what is this? If you were to say a dog, you're telling me the substance of the thing, its essence or its natural kind. Uh, if you say that it's large, it's barks, it weighs this much, it's brown, it's furry, you're telling me it's accidents, it's features, okay? Uh, we wanna get that term on the table, substance and accidents, these terms on the table, because they're often used in very different senses. Today, substance is used by a lot of scientists to just mean like any kind of stuff you'd use in a laboratory, like, uh, and accidents is like, I don't know, an auto accident or something, uh, like, a ch like an event of some kind, a haphazard event. Um, that's not how the terms are used in the philosophy of nature, in the traditional philosophy of nature. Substance signifies the natural kind of a thing, its essence or what it is, essentially. Accident signifies its features. I need to draw a distinction, though, a further distinction, which is that the term substance can signify not only the natural kind, it can also signify the particular thing itself, the subject that bears or displays those accidents. So Fido can be called a substance, not just his, his um, natural kind, which is dog or poodle or something more specific, but uh, the very entity that's also called a substance. So it, things get tricky because one and the same term can have different meanings. You can have substance in the sense of natural kind, substance in the sense of a particular thing. You can also have accidents in the sense of their types, but also particular tokens of them as well, okay? But the way Aristotle thinks about it is that all the things of nature around us are composed of matter and form, meaning when you study the dog, there's the substance there, this, the particular thing, there's its natural kind, and there's the features it's had, and the features it has or displays, or, and that's one reality, one composite reality. So the things given to us in nature are complex that way, complex givens, okay? Now we can introduce the term form, which is one of the great terms of Aristotelian philosophy of nature, form. You guess the term from Plato, but form is that which makes a thing to be what it is. That's a very broad definition, I know, but that's the classic definition. Form is that which makes a thing to be what it is. So when we think of a dog or a tree or water or a flower of some kind, what is it that makes it to be a dog? What is it that makes it to be a tree? What is it that makes it to be a flower? What is it that makes it to be water? It's not the parts. It's the form, which is a constitutive principle of the whole. And in fact, it's the form that makes the elements or the parts to be what they are and to figure in 
and to be ordered in a certain way in the whole and act accordingly. Okay? Sometimes this is called by Thomistic philosophers top-down causation. Sometimes it's called inside-out causation. It's both. Aristotle really thought that all the things in nature around us have, well, natures. They belong to certain kinds and what makes them to be the kind of thing they are that each one is, is its, its own form. Okay? Now what I've been describing to you is substantial form. A substantial form is what makes a thing to be of the substance that it is. Okay? So it's the form of a cat that makes the thing to be a cat. It's the form of a dog that makes the thing to be a dog. It's the form of oak tree that makes the thing to be an oak tree. It's the form of water that makes the thing to be water, okay? Notice that's of a natural kind. But guess what? Each one of the features that we talk about, including colors and sensible qualities, but their weight, their shape, their colors, uh, those are forms too. Those are called accidental forms. Accidental forms, okay? And the way that Aristotle thinks about it is that the things in nature around us are composed of matter, this principle of potentiality, and form. And form is the principle of actuality as distinct from potentiality. So when a thing has a dog form, it actually is a dog. When it has the accidental form of being white or tall, it actually is white or tall, okay? That's what we mean by form, that which makes a thing to be what it is. Now, we could elaborate form in great detail. And we can do that in the Q&A if you want. It's one of the great, great questions of philosophy. What is form? And why should we say that these forms are there? What happens if we say they're not? Uh, many implications. So we could talk about that at great length in the Q&A if you'd like. But Aristotle thinks that all the things around us are composed of substance and accident, and they're also composed of matter and form. There's different kinds of analysis we can bring to bear on things, okay? And using this uh, analysis of substance and accident, matter and form, we can come up with three kinds of accidental changes. I mentioned them quickly at the beginning of the talk. The three kinds of accidental change are alterations, change in qualities, augmentations, or diminishments, which are changes in quantity of a thing, and locomotion, which is change in place. Can you think of a, a kind of change that's neither a change of alteration, neither a change of quality, nor a change of quantity, nor a change of place? If someone can think of an example, I'd be happy to hear it during the Q&A. But you might think of this, well, what about just something, not changing a quality or quantity or place, but just coming to be altogether? Like um, when fire comes to be uh, from out of some wood, right? Wood is burning there and the fire just comes to be, okay? That could be the generation, you might say, of fire or a dog coming to be, 
a cat coming to be, not coming to be this or that, not coming to be tall or, or fat or brown or this color or that, but just coming to exist altogether, simply speaking. Aristotle is aware of that. He calls that substantial change. Okay? Substantial change is something coming to be or passing away, simply speaking. Okay? Do we think that substantial change is real? Aristotle thought it was a common sense datum. Substantial change happens. There's different kinds of things in the world. They come in different, uh, yeah, they come in different kinds or categories. And they also come to be and pass away. Dogs don't, dogs are not infinitely old. Once upon a time, the dog didn't exist. Then it comes to exist. It won't live forever and it will cease to be. Now, it might be hard for us to empirically identify when did it begin to exist. That's a different question. Identifying when it began to exist is harder, but that it began to exist and that it will cease to exist seems evident to reason, okay? So Aristotle was convinced there are substantial changes, and any philosophy of nature which entails that there are not substantial changes would seem to be false, okay? Just because it entails that there are no substantial changes. Okay. So here's a third principle. Some things come to be and pass away. Or you could say some things come to exist and cease to exist. Same point. Now this is interesting, this has implications too. If some things come to be and pass away, then substantial form itself comes to be and passes away in particular things. How shall we understand this? We can understand it by an analogy with accidental change. Just as in an accidental change, the substance remains while the accidental form comes and goes, so in substantial change, something endures from the old substance to the new while the substantial form comes and goes. What endures is a substrate common to both substances and out of which the new one comes. So let's try to break this down. When we're discussing accidental changes in number two, we have the basic idea that let's say, let's take water for example. It starts out, uh, you have the substance water it's got an accidental form of cold. It's heated on a stove, and that accidental form of cold passes away, and that accidental form of hot comes to be, okay? So something endures through the change, the substance itself, and something comes and goes, the, the accidental form. Well, similarly, in a substantial change, there's something that endures from before to after, from before the fire begins to after the fire begins. Uh, but there's something that co past comes and goes. But what's interesting is that what comes and goes is the substantial form, okay? So what we start with is wood, and then what results, the wood ceases to be, and what begins to be is ashes, let's say, okay? But still there's got to be something in common from the old to the new. Why does there have to be something in common from the old substance to the new? Because of a fourth principle that 
The pre-Socratic philosophers loved to quote, Aristotle is aware of it and realizes it has implications. Four, nothing comes from nothing. Okay, nothing comes from nothing. Things don't pop into existence out of nothing, okay? They're, they must come to be from something preceding, okay? It's a principle that was, like I said, widely quoted by the pre-Socratics. So now we're set up for a, the following kind of reasoning. If some things come to be and pass away, then either there's something continuous from the old to the new thing, or the new thing comes from nothing. But nothing comes from nothing, according to our fourth principle. Therefore, there must be something continuous from the old thing to the new, and it's called primary matter. Primary matter. Primary matter does not exist on its own. It's not a thing, like a substance. It's a constitutive principle of substances, but not an element or an atom. What is it? I don't know a lot of science, but I, I know that sometimes they use, you use the word pluripotential or pluripotency. What is primary? It's pluripotency. You could go further and say it's omnipotency. It's potentiality to all forms, to all natural forms, okay? That's what it is. It's not like a thing or a substance existing on its own, it's pluripotency itself, or omnipotency, okay? It's a, primary matter is a pluripotency or omnipotency latent within all the things of nature. All things of nature have pluripotency, or this omnipotency, and new things are generated from out of it. Okay, so, the ashes are generated from out of this pluripotency, which is latent within the wood that burns, okay? All right, with these four principles in mind, you can see we've got a rationale for a number of things that are in Aristotle's philosophy of nature. Number one gives us a rationale for potency. Number two gives us a rationale for composition of substance and accident. Uh, number three gives us a rationale for affirming uh, continuity, something continuous between old and new. Three and four together really give us um, a rationale for that, okay? For affirming something continuous from the old to the new in substantial changes, okay? We're now in a position to enunciate the main principle of Aristotle's philosophy of nature. We call it the principle of hylomorphism. Okay? What's the main principle? The main principle goes like this. It's quite simple. All things of nature are composed of matter and form. That's pretty general. What's the contradictory opposite? Something of nature is not composed of matter and form. That means it either doesn't have matter, which means it has no potentiality, or it doesn't have form which means it has no actuality. That's a, that would be a very odd thing indeed, okay? 
So that first principle by itself, all things of nature are composed of matter and form, is motivated by this problematic, but also has a kind of self-evidence about it if you try to conceive the opposite, okay? But the way I've stated the principle so far is very general. We can go further now, given the, the terminology we have, and we can say something more specific. Here's a more specific, we could say better, more adequate, articulation of the principle of hylomorphism. All the things of nature are composed of primary matter and substantial form. All things of nature are composed of primary matter and substantial form. That means everything in the world around us in nature, each tree, each cat, each dog, each organism, uh, each is composed of this substantial form, a principle that makes the thing to be what it is, and primary matter, this pluripotentiality, they come together, if we may put it that way. I'm already kind of making it sound like these are two different things, but I'm aware they're not. These two principles co-constitute each particular thing in nature around us. It's the matter, the pluripotentiality that accounts for their changeability, and the form that accounts for their actuality whether at the level of their natural kind or at the level of their features, okay? So that's the main principle. There's a couple ways we can think about this. The two levels of change reveal the two levels of composition. Accidental change reveals the composition of substance and accident. Substantial change reveals the composition of substantial form and primary matter. We've been talking about change a lot. Let's take a minute to give a definition of change. Aristotle's classic definition is this. Change is the actualization of what is in potential insofar as it is in potential. So what Aristotle does is he takes this discovery of potency and act and he uses it to analyze all change whatsoever and he gives us, he, he tells us, the nature of change or the essence of change. It's the actualization of what is in potential insofar as it's in potential. Change literally is potency becoming actual, to put a short spin on it, okay? Change is potency becoming actual. And that's how he analyzes all, all four species of change. Alterations, augmentations, uh, locomotions, and substantial changes. Uh, let's note that there's a significant difference there between that and contemporary physics, because I don't know, maybe I'm scientifically naive, maybe someone could educate me about this, but it seems like the thrust of science in the last several centuries is to try to explain all change in terms of locomotion. There's these fundamental units moving around locally and that accounts for all changes. For Aristotle, locomotion is a specific and irreducible it's a species of change all of its own, and he doesn't try to use locomotion or things in locomotion to explain other kinds of changes. He just accepts the four irreducible kinds of change that are given in ordinary experience, okay? And I think that's what sets up for some of the changes in, in, um, that take place in early modern physics is the attempt to somehow reconceive of locomotion, not in terms of the actualization of potential, and then to try to reconceive of all change in terms of this 
new kinds of locomotion now understood very differently from Aristotle. Okay? And that's what sets up for a big part of the, the conflict, or apparent conflict, we must say, between the, between the perennial philosophy of nature and contemporary science. All right, well, Aristotle realizes that if change is the actualization of potentiality, pot potentiality does not realize itself on its own. That seems to be a self-evident principle. Potency doesn't realize itself on its own. Uh, your bank account potentially has a million dollars in it, but that potentiality is not just gonna realize itself on its own, okay? There needs to be some kind of cause that brings about the actualization of potentiality. Now, I just used the word cause. So here we go, we're going to discuss causation. This will be one of the um, thorniest kinds of topics in the philosophy of nature and modern science and the apparent conflict between the two. What is causation? Here's the contemporary answer based on um, sort of developments in philosophy and in science that took place in early modernity, but especially through the influence of thinkers like David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Causation on the contemporary view of things is the succession of events or phenomena according to a law or according to a rule, okay? Whenever the temperature is above such and such a degree, uh, the snow melts. So you have the first the temperature rises, that's one event or phenomena, and then another event or phenomena follows the snow melting, that's according to a rule, okay? That's how I think people think of causation today, okay? Successive events or a sequence of events or phenomena, but not just any sequence, but like an orderly sequence, and that orderly sequence is specified by a law. And if we ask what's, the, you know, what's a law or what kind of rule, well, that's when all the fun begins when we start to ask the, in the philosophy of causation, okay? But that's really how I think scientists think of causation. That's just not how Aristotle thought of causation. It's just not. He thought about it in a very different way. I'm gonna give you a definition of cause that at first may be a little bit mind-boggling, but it goes like this. A cause is a principle. There's that word again, a principle. Cause is a principle from which something follows in dependence of being. Or I could give you another definition. A cause is any source of being or becoming. What do you mean by source? Well, it's a very broad term. Okay? We would just want it to distinguish it from a condition. We'll get to that later. With, a, with using the term cause in that very broad sense, Aristotle elaborates all kinds of causes, okay? Or what today we might call causal factors, okay? The term cause for Aristotle is polyvalent. It has many meanings or shades of meaning. It's analogical to use a term uh, dear to Thomists, okay? But using cause in this very broad sense, he elaborates his theory of four causes, or his account of the four causes. I hope you've all heard the four causes. For those of you who haven't, 
I will elaborate it quickly and briefly, okay? The, there are four causes of anything in nature, Aristotle thinks. The first cause he calls the material cause, that out of which a thing is made. To use an analogy with uh, human artifacts, if we think of a house, the house is, the material cause of the house would be the wood, the bricks, the mortar, the cement, those kinds of things. It's the things that go to make it up. Then there's the formal cause. We've kind of already discussed that, that which makes a thing to be what it is. So in the case of our analogy, house would be its formal cause. It's what makes it to be a house. Then there's the efficient cause, or sometimes called the agent cause. I wish it was always called the agent cause, okay? But the efficient cause or the agent cause is that which brings the, the thing into being, the, the, the source of, of motion or rest in that which comes to be or, or is at rest, okay? That's which brings the thing about. So in the case of our house analogy, the carpenter is gonna be the efficient cause or the agent cause, okay? And finally, no pun intended, the final cause, okay? Aristotle's very famous for uh, defending that things in nature have purposes or goals or ends. Really, we should call them ends. The final cause is that for the sake of which a thing is or comes to be, okay? That for the sake of which a thing is or comes to be. Okay? So if we say, what's the final cause of eyes, vision? What's the final cause of ears, hearing? What's the final cause of the sun to illuminate, uh, yeah, to, to illuminate the earth, you could say? Okay? What's the final cause of atoms, if there are atoms, you know, according to the periodic table of elements, uh, to compose things around us? Okay? To compose things. These are the four causes. Aristotle thought that all things of nature have these four causes. And you understand a thing in nature by discovering the four causes that go into it. Now there's a lot we could say about each of these causes. But Aristotle really held that the critical and central cause is the final cause. If you don't know the final cause of the thing, you don't have the understanding, you don't have complete understanding of it, okay? We can elaborate two principles now that are part of Aristotelian philosophy of nature. First, the principle of efficient causality. Whatever comes to be has an efficient cause. Whatever comes to be has an efficient cause. We could give an argument for that. We kind of, I already gave you one, kind of. Potency doesn't realize itself on its own. That's the beginning of an argument for that. There's another principle, the principle of final causality. All agents act for the sake of an end. That's a very big statement about nature. That means every entity in nature, insofar as it's an acting, insofar as it's an agent, is acting for the sake of an end. Everything is, we could say, purpose-driven. Even things that altogether lack intelligence. Okay? How that can be so is a great question. 
Um, but that's one of the principles. So we live in a world of form and finality. Nature is an abode or a milieu of form and finality. What, around, what we find around us is each thing having its own nature, a substantial form, and its own final cause. And there's lots of things we could say to show how the formal cause and the final cause are correlated in various ways with each other, okay? So things around us are always seeking their optimal state. They're seeking their full realization. They're seeking the actualization of their potentiality. But they do so under the influence of agent causes, which are working for their ends as well, okay? Now, there's many further distinctions we can draw regarding causes, and we can draw them as the need comes up and are problematic. We can distinguish between causes and conditions, or conditio sine qua non. We can distinguish between causes in potency versus causes in act. That's a very important <coughs> distinction in Aristotle that leads to the principle that all causes in act are simultaneous with their effects. That's a big principle. And I've had some interesting experiences trying to present Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God to audiences of scientists who simultaneous causation seems really, really, really weird to scientists. But Aristotle thinks about it in a very sharp, particular way and has a principle about the simultaneity of cause and effect. We can talk about primary causes versus secondary causes, proximate causes versus remote causes. We can talk about causes operating, or causes per se versus causes per accidents. All kinds of distinctions that allow Aristotle to elaborate an understanding of chance and other such things um, in ways that are quite different from the contemporary understanding of things. Okay, what I just did was give you a kind of crash course in the principles of nature, uh, that text of Aquinas, where he tries to lay out the basic principles in Aristotle's philosophy of nature. Now, I remember when I was first learning this years ago, I, uh, the first question that came to me as I was learning all of this was, does any of this square with like contemporary uh, physics or contemporary chemistry or the modern sciences? Everyone faces that question. Uh, how can you say that these things are true? Where you have this, it seems almost antiquated, archaic kind of picture, which is an analysis by principles. When you compare that to the analysis by elements that you get in a standard uh, kind of science education today. And basically it was by reading a certain number of Thomists in what's called the River Forest School of uh, Thomism, or the River Forest School of Natural Philosophy, a number of these thinkers, especially Vincent Edward Smith, who was a member of that school, he kind of elaborated a, a very basic answer that to me seemed satisfactory when I first heard it, and it seems satisfactory to me still. And that is that the philosophy of nature is telling you the broadest, most general principles of nature and elaborating the essences of natural things. The contemporary sciences are telling you highly specific, highly detailed matters. A lot of it is regarding their accidental features, okay? And so these are not two incompatible systems regarding nature. They're two levels of analysis operating at very different levels. 
Um, and if like contemporary physics or something wants to deny one of these, uh, it seems to be a problem for the physics, not for these. We'll stop there.